2. You can find it on page 9 there. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. When the angels went away for them, from them into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the, what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we give you thanks and praise this morning for the word made flesh. Uh, may uh, he grow and um, grow peace and joy in our hearts this day. In the name of Jesus, amen. Mary has been... And into the world. And it's uh, with good reason that Mary is our primary travel guide because she puts us in touch quite uniquely with the humanity of Jesus. It was her womb uh, that uh, bore Jesus. It was her flesh, her DNA, her cells and blood and the things that she ate, the nutrients from her womb that were uh, the thing by which she grew his facial features. More than any other figure in all the scriptures and the Gospels, Mary helps us understand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and his humanity. Um, aside from John the Baptist, who has a tragic end in the middle of the Gospel, uh, Mary is the only person that uh, is a, it links the infancy narratives of Luke with the rest of the story of the Gospel. Mary, in this sense, is like a bridge, a bridge figure uh, between the birth narratives and uh, the rest of the gospel as a whole. She is really the only person 
that is part of Jesus's life from the moment of his conception and birth to his death and even beyond his death after his resurrection. So it raises, I think, an interesting question for us. What does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus throughout the whole course of your life? What does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus throughout the whole course of your life? When you think about the relationships of your, li of, of your life, none of those relationships remain the same. <laughs> when you're married, uh, if, you know, you're, you and your spouse, that you change and you grow, especially this is true of, of your children. Your children never stop growing and your relationship with your kids changes as they change, as you change. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, God, you know, is he, you know, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that's true. There's a sense that, um, as the divine son, he is. But that doesn't mean um, that our relationship with him always remains the same. And I think this is part of the mystery of the incarnation. Um, there's a sense in which Jesus grows up with us and in us, just in the way that Mary experienced Jesus from the moment when he was a child to the moment of his death, right? And the way I think that you engage this is we have to do what Mary did. So um, we have to learn to be contemplative. I think that's, that's the, the sort of the theme this morning of what Mary uh, teaches us. And it's, you see this in our verse here in verse 19. After uh, the angels have come and made their announcement and shared all the news, it says that Mary, she, she treasured all these things and pondered them. And that, that, that word treasure, right, it's to, to keep close, to, to, um, to gather together some things that are precious. To ponder is to, to reflect, to interpret, to wonder, as, as Kelly um, as was asking the children, to wonder, to wonder and reflect the meaning of it. So I, what I want to do with you this morning is just, what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus across the whole span of your life? Not just from one point in time, but across the whole span of your life. And, and I think, again, it involves um, we, contemplation, that we develop a contemplative faith like Mary did. And the first thing, as, uh, there's three things I want us to reflect on. The first thing we learn about a contemplative faith is, is that we need to wrestle with the mystery wrestle with the mystery of God in Jesus Christ. Arguably the most, uh, the center of the Christian faith, the most mysterious aspect is what we call the incarnation, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. God remains God. God becomes human without ceasing to be God, without ceasing to be the eternal one, the unchanging one. And I think what the thing about mystery is in our culture, we tend to think of mystery as what we retreat to when, we, when reason fails us, right? It's the thing that we appeal to when we can't explain things through science and, and, and uh, reason. But this is, uh, this is a mistake because uh, the opposite of faith is, is not um, reason. As I've said in the past, the opposite of faith is unbelief. Actually, mystery, though, uh, calls out more reasoning, more engagement. And that's what you see in the story of Mary. If you remember when the angel Gabriel first comes to her and makes the announcement that she will be with child, that she will be, um, you know, bear the son of the most high, she asks the question, well, how? How will this be? 
She's trying to discern and understand. And the angel says, well, it'll happen through the Holy Spirit. You'll conceive through the Spirit. Now, the angel asks her question about the mystery of how a virgin will give birth and conceive by adding more mystery. And that's how God works. That's how mystery works in our life. Um, contemplation is a unique form of thinking and reasoning. You know, when we think about reason, we think about conquering. We think about, you know, we're, we're going to understand it, we're going to grasp it, we're going to conquer it, but that's not contemplation. Contemplation is reason engaging a mystery that calls forth more mystery. Um, I think that image of contemplation is beautifully captured with this image of the pregnant mother, the pregnant woman, Mary. The mystery of a relationship with God through Jesus is like an embryo implanted deep within us. And like a mother who ponders the future of her child and life and who that child will grow up to be, so it is our relationship with God. Faith, faith is the nurture of the mystery of God's life deep within us. Faith is the mystery, uh, the nurture of the mystery of God's life deep within us. Uh, Gregory the Great, one of the early church fathers, described faith as it's the knowledge of God impregnated with love. I love that image. The knowledge, faith is the knowledge of God impregnated with love. Faith um, that we're talking about, a contemplative faith, is intimate, it's experiential, it seeks relationship. Knowledge with relationship, right? And <clears throat> after Jesus is born, it's not as if Mary ceases to wonder, to ponder, to be surprised and amazed at who her son is and what he becomes. He never stops growing, that's the thing. That's the thing about children, they never stop growing. They keep getting bigger. And it's the same with the word of God in our life. When the word of God comes and is implanted in our life, it doesn't stand still. It doesn't stay the same. It grows, it changes, it challenges, it pushes us out of our comfort zone. Again, that's the thing about having children is um, they're always continually pushing you out of your comfort zone, <laughs> confounding your expectations. Uh, a couple of scenes from the life of Mary just to remind you of her story and the various points at which she's confronted, confounded by Jesus. So you have this report of the shepherds to Mary where she, she treasures and gathers these things up. But the story right after this in a couple verses is when Jesus is a boy around the age of 10 or 11 and they go with a caravan and Jesus stays behind and they don't realize this until like a day later. He stays at the temple and she comes back, and she's like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> and Jesus says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And then it says that Mary, uh, again, she pondered. She, 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 you know, she pondered these things in her heart. Or think about the time in the Gospel of John, you learn where Jesus is, you know, they're at a wedding, they've run out of wine, and then Mary comes to Jesus and said, hey, can you, the party's about to, to stop, can you do something? And Jesus says to her, woman, my time has not yet come. He kind of, you know, rebukes her lightly. He still does the miracle. Or there's a time when Jesus is in the midst of his ministry, early on in his ministry, and, and Mary comes to Jesus and asks, you know, he's in his house, and she's trying to get to them, and word is sent, you know, your mother is looking for you. And Jesus says, well, who is my mother? <laughs> who is my mother? 
Who are my family, my brothers and sisters? It's those who listen and obey the word of the Lord, right? You can imagine, right, like, oh, you know, the sting of that as Mary. Or, or from the cross. Gospel of John has a picture of Mary there at the cross watching her son die. And Jesus from the cross says to her mother, behold your son, and pointing to John. And then there's ascension at Pentecost, and Mary is praying there. So you can imagine Mary's experience with Jesus from the moment of birth and all the joy to fleeing for her life with this child to her, from, from, from a murderous Herod, to all these different things, and all these points in her life where she's confronted. She has to ponder. She has to treasure. And it's no different. <laughs> it's no different in us. Jesus doesn't stand still in your life. The word doesn't stand still. It grows. It change, changes. To be a parent, um, one of the things is to be vulnerable. To have children um, makes you vulnerable to the world. Because when you have children, you know, what they suffer, uh, you suffer. <laughs> um, there's a way that I think the scariest thing about children is that um, they're their own people and, and all of what they experience in the world in a way you experience in a secondhand kind of way as a parent. And a relationship with Jesus is very much like that. It is to become vulnerable to his own suffering in the world, his own way in the world. It is to become, in a sense, woundable. Simeon, you remember when he comes to Mary and the, this old... Simeon, he says, this child will be the cause for the rise and fall of many in Israel. And he says, sort of parenthetically to Mary, and a sword will pierce your soul too. You won't escape the suffering that your son bears. And in fact, he will wound you. I think the mystery of the incarnation is not simply that it happens outside of us, which it is, but it's the mystery of Jesus dwelling in us by the Spirit by which he grows within us and transforms us just like he did Mary across the whole course of our life. So the first thing, right, of contemplation is wrestling with the mystery, the mystery of God with us, God in us, growing throughout the course of our life. But the second thing here is there's a way that the mystery is actually lived out and discovered in a kind of surprisingly ordinary way. Um, and this is the second point is it's learning to see God in the ordinary. That's, that's the second point of a contemplative life. It's learning, it's learning to see God in the ordinary, discerning his presence in humble things. Friends, the majority of your relationship with Jesus um, will be lived out through the course of your life in completely ordinary and humble moments. It's not going to be mountaintop experiences. It's not going to be miraculous interventions. Sometimes in our lives, we get those. Maybe once or twice. <laughs> but it's going to be the ordinary, the everyday, the mundane. That's where God meets us. And, <clears throat> and I think to, to have a contemplative faith is to learn to see God in the ordinary and the mundane. Here's the thing. Mary, if you're reading the story carefully, Mary and Joseph don't get a choir of angels. They don't get a choir of angels at the birth of Jesus. That's really important. The angels go to the shepherds, right? Mary has received word that 
for sure. She had an angel that came early on, right? So we're not going to discount that Mary had, had a, a, a unique, miraculous intervention. <clears throat> she has news that this child she is carrying um, will be king of Israel, the son of the Most High. But in the moment of giving birth, <clears throat> I've seen a couple births. Um, when that is happening, there is nothing else that exists except the reality of giving birth and the pain and the suffering and all, the, all that surrounds that. And the thing about Luke's narration of the birth story is this, is that it's, it, there's no glory to it whatsoever. There is nothing miraculous. Um, it is an ordinary birth. And in fact, it's, it's, it's quite the opposite of being miraculous. Or um, Mary's been forced to travel because of this decree of Caesar, and she gives birth in transit, basically. They have to pull off the side of the road and find a place for her to give birth. And it's with a hostel, like, and with a bunch of animals. That's the manger, right? They lay them in a manger. The shepherd's experience of this glorious revelation, they have this experience of this glorious revelation, but they don't actually have the reality, right? So they don't have the manger. <clears throat> and no doubt you could have... If they just seen this chorus of angels and the news and, and they're, they're imagining like, well, what is this going to look like? You know, probably like something really glorious. Like if Caesar's uh, wife gave birth or King Solomon or something like that. So it would be opulent and, um, you know, it would be in uh, a high, you know, this great hospital, you know, with all these, these people attending and waiting. But instead, the angel says this, and this will be the sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Again, I remind you what a manger is. A manger is a feed trough for animals, likely made out of stone or clay. And it was located in the side compartment of a house where the domestic animals be in and out and fed by their owners. This is where Jesus finds himself. It's very humbling. And swaddling cloths. Swaddling cloths are basically the garments of of peasants, of the poor. This is the sign, right, of the manger. You could think of the manger as kind of the opposite of a miracle. It's the anti-miracle. It's not glorious. It's ordinary in the most extreme sense. It's so humble and so human. But again, part of the mystery of faith is that God chooses to humble the ordinary instruments to reveal himself and to work in our lives. The religious leaders of Israel, Herod and Caesar, the, the, you know, the people in charge are oblivious to the birth of this child. Even though it's right beneath their noses, right in their backyard, they can't see it because God is invisible to the proud. God is invisible to the proud. It's only those who are of humble estate that can see and only those of humble estate that can receive. So that's why the stories, especially in Luke it, and in Matthew, it's filled with very humble figures, shepherds and peasants, wise men, uh, Elizabeth, Zechariah, um, an aging Simeon and Anna. The humility of the manger and the cross is offensive to us, I think, because our hearts are always demanding from God signs, spectacular signs. God, show yourself to us. And this, this is a theme that runs through all the Gospels that I 
talk about a lot is the demand for signs. And almost always, when we demand signs from God, it's a sign of unbelief. That to demand a sign is, in a sense, wanting God to prove himself on our own terms. Um, to show himself to us without us having to change who we are and how we think about the world. And uh, again, you think about the manger in this light. Um, the miracle of Christmas, though, is that God actually does meet us on our own terms. He does. He remains God unchanging, God the eternal, but he becomes human. He meets us in our own terms in the most radical way possible by becoming a human being. <clears throat> but to see God in our lives requires humility. Um, I think this is just a hard thing for us in our culture. We live in a very non-contemplative uh, age. We are always, it seems, in a constant state of distraction and busyness. Um, we're easily bored by the ordinary, by the everyday. We want the unique, the new, the different. And we tend to approach the world as something to be mastered, something to be conquered, uh, something to use as an instrument for our own ends. And again, so we have little imagination for how God becomes present within ordinary things. And <clears throat> I think the more we live in this world, we, um, I often talk about this as a kind of form of practical atheism. Right? We believe in God. We believe God exists. But our belief in God doesn't really impact anything about our lives. We don't really know how God becomes present in our lives. And I think what this leads us to is... Um, a kind of a God of the gaps spirituality, where God shows up just in the gaps of our lives. We don't know how to make sense of how he fits in the others, but he shows them in the gaps. I re recently read an article about uh, a concert that everybody wanted to be at in Mexico, a very well-known popular artist, and um, people were saving up their wages for a month just to get tickets, but there was a problem that uh, the ticket agency, you know, where some people weren't able to get in. And, and one of um, the people quoted standing in line hoping to get in was this young girl. And she says this prayer, God, I'd never have asked anything of you. If there's one thing I ask of you for in my life, it's to get into this concert. Now, you know, it might be silly, but there's a sense in which I think we're, this is very much a God of the gap spirituality. It's like, when I can't manage the gaps, I need God to fill in. And so when we're suffering, we need God to deliver us. Um, when we have happiness needs we need, that we can't meet, we need God to fill in the gap. He needs to show up. But again, we have this difficulty of being able to see God in all the ordinary things of our lives. But the reality of the incarnation turns all this upside down. The incarnation is about how God has entered space and time and history through the flesh of Jesus. The word become flesh and dwelt among us. The reality of the incarnation in a sense forces us, forces us to grapple with how God becomes present in the ordinary of our lives. So what is exactly is the sign of the manger then? What does that sign mean, right? It's an ordinary thing, but what's the content? or the message of the manger. And this brings us to the last point. So we have to wrestle with the mystery. We have to see God in the ordinary. But the final thing is that we have to um, 
we have to trust the word of the messengers. We have to accept the messenger's word. Mary and Joseph don't have a glorious choir of angels that testifies to the birth of Jesus. They must accept the glory of what has happened based on the testimony and the witness of the shepherds. I think this is really important. See, God sends a word of good news with the shepherds, right? King David was a shepherd. He was a shepherd boy from the city of Bethlehem. But shepherds are, are humble messengers. You remember when, when David comes to the front line and you know everybody's afraid of Goliath, and David says, I'll fight him. And they just dismiss him. Was it, you're a shepherd boy, who are you, right? You know, we tend to romanticize shepherds, but we shouldn't do that, actually. Shepherds in the ancient world, and this time at least, were kind of suspicious figures, a little bit shady. I, I think the equivalent today would be like a used car salesman. I mean, you can, get, you can have good used car salesmen, but as a profession, generally, you don't trust them. And that's the way the shepherds were. And in fact, according to the Talmud and the Mishnah, which are uh, Jewish uh, writings, shepherds were not, they're, they're, they were not allowed to give witness in legal uh, proceedings. But it's interesting that God chooses these shepherds to be the messengers, these outsiders. And I think what's important about this is you shouldn't despise the shepherds. Don't despise the shepherds because they're humble. Only a few receive a message from angels. The rest of us have to rely on shepherds, right? Mary doesn't get the choir of angels. She has to trust the word of the shepherds. And so I think that's important. Who are the shepherds in your life? Who are the messengers? Right, of course, I'm one of these shepherds. <laughs> Hopefully not more trustworthy than a used car salesman. Um, but you, parents, grandparents, family members, friends, people in the church that oftentimes function as shepherds in our lives that, that bring the message right? And they're imperfect. And they don't do everything right. But God still entrusts the message to the shepherds, to the imperfect. But what is that message? <clears throat> I want you to look again at our verses, starting in verse 10. The message is, fear not, for behold, I bring you news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God and peace among those with whom he is pleased. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not simply Mary's child. He's the shepherd's child. He's your child. He is born unto you. And I love that phrase. He is born unto you, which means he's born for your sake. as Jesus becomes a familiar figure in our life, I think it's important for us to again, return again and again to um, this message that the shepherds report to us from the angels. And you can imagine what it was like there. If you're the shepherd, you're at night, and then you have this angel that appears, right? No doubt with a lot of light. And then behind this angel, a whole chorus and who knows what happened, right? Whether kind of the veil of heaven was, was open. But you can imagine there's this horizon that is just shining. And there is the most glorious and the most beautiful music and joy 
and peace that is just emanating out from heaven that you can imagine was just overwhelming to have that experience. This is that horizon. What is your horizon? <laughs> we have to return to that horizon, that, that, that joy, that peace, that love that emanates out of heaven. What is the horizon as you think about your relationship with Christ? Is your horizon one of fear, of anxiety, or of conflict? What is that defining horizon of your life? Glory to God on earth and peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus was born into a world at war, but he was the peace child. A world at war with itself, a world at war um, within, but to bear the peace child, to have Jesus in our life is to bear peace, shalom itself at the very center of our hearts and lives, even as we live within a world of war. To contemplate him, to bear him is to know this peace and to have this peace at the center of our life. But it is also to have joy. That's the final thing, is the joy. I mean, the overriding mood emotionally of all the infancy narratives, especially in Luke, is just joy. Unmedicated, just pure joy, which is the joy of heaven, which is kind of comes to us like an invasion. Heaven, again, is a place of unimaginable, ineffable, uncontainable joy. And the reason it's that is because it is the presence of God. And in the presence of God, there is joy. And we have this window between heaven and oath that is opened up in this scene. And there's rejoicing, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God and peace on earth among those whom he is pleased. Brothers and sisters, in a world of death and darkness and loss, life and light has sprung that cannot be explained based on what is. But to have Jesus at our lives, to have this child in our lives, is to be connected with the very source of joy itself, at the center of our being. And because this joy is a source, it means that no matter what is going on in your life, what suffering, what loss, that it is not incompatible with this joy. So with that in mind, we continue in our worship and we give praise to God who has sent the joy of the world. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise for this Christmas morning, for the peace and the joy of Christ. And we do pray, I pray, God, that we would know, we would know peace and joy deep within and that it would emanate out into our lives and touch all around us. We give you thanks and praise. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.